Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Movie Chumps, episode 60, Dragon Slayer. Let's get after it. I've been witness to something. Something of consequence to you. To me? There's a great task needing to be done. No doubt you've heard of our trouble at home. A dragon. Fire and stench. It is evil. Pure and simple. You want me to do battle with that? Behold, for I am chosen, I shall die that many may live. Twice each year, the king selects a new victim. Chosen by lot. Girls. Virgins. Your king made a pact with a monster. But your children were dying. Only a few. Does that sound cruel? Blacksmith, have you ever forged a weapon? An edge like no other on this earth. Slayer. Coming from Paramount Pictures. The official tagline from the movie poster for Dragon Slayer reads as follows. In the Dark Ages, magic was a weapon, love was a mystery, adventure was everywhere, and dragons were real. Corey, here's what they left out. <laughs> this film is a mountain of horse shit. Welcome to Movie Jumps, episode 60. Meanwhile, Ian McDermott, a.k.a. Palpatine, a.k.a. The Emperor. So yes. He, so he is in other movies. Yes, he is. You know, that's a, I know that's a, a little-known fact, but yes, Ian McDermott actually does star in other things other than Star Wars. Yeah, this movie is, uh, it, it's something. <laughs> Corey, you know you've we, had a you've had a heck of a run, my friend. We get Will Hunting, Rocky Four. This might pass Vivarium. And... Oh come on! <laughs> I mean, no, it's I'm been kidding. a it's been a it's been a while since we've had a healthy dose of bullshit in this podcast. So I think it was it we were about due. No, I actually enjoyed it. The first half I thought blue. Second half really kind of woke me up a little bit, especially when they started showing the dragon. The third act really kicks in really well. And I, I like the fact, and I always thought it was interesting, the fact that they do a good job of basically hiding the dragon a la Jaws style. Yes. Uh, so, which was, I think, kind Notice of Notice that works. too. Totally uh, worked. And in terms of the, you know, the special effects, and we'll get into that for, for the time, I think it's, it's pretty impressive, it, it's, it's, at least for the, uh, you know, the 40-foot puppets and things that they made. You know, the go motion is a little dated, but again, this is going back 40 years now. So. But even then, because we're talking 1981 here, mm -hmm. all that stuff looked pretty darn good. I mean, this could have easily taken home two Oscars. Unfortunately for this film, it was released the same year as Raiders of the Lost Ark which won uh, Best Visual Effects and Chariots of Fire, Best Original Score, that, of course, iconic uh, music from that film. So other than that, though, this could have had two Oscars in its pocket. Yeah, I mean, honestly, those were well-deserved Oscar nominations. Yes. And, and I, you know, easily uh, in this case, it, it could have gone to, it could have gone to Dragon Slayer. You know, Alex North had an excellent score, and we'll get into that when we talk about it more. And it's interesting to me that, ILM was actually going up against themselves in the category because they did the special effects for Raiders of the Lost Ark, which ended up winning. This was actually the first film that Industrial Light and Magic did that wasn't actually a Lucasfilm production, which is kind of interesting. Hey, we'll get all into that, but first we got five questions. Before that, mm -hmm. we got a little indie news. You want to get oh, yes, jumps up to speed? Some big I'm news. I'm so glad that you brought that up. For So our boy, Mads Mikkelsen, who, by Ooh. the way, stay tuned because I've got a hell of a great recommendation coming up and recommendations for a movie that he started 
But uh, he actually revealed uh, this week to Collider in an interview he did with them because there's he's got a movie that's coming up soon. I can't remember the name of it. But he said that he has actually read the full script of Indiana Jones 5. They let him read it first before he decided to be in uh, the film and take the role, which still is undisclosed. But I think it would be a very surprised if it wasn't a, a villain role. But he said it was everything he hoped it, it could be. Um, he's very interested. He's very excited about it. And he even talked about in the article how, you know, Raiders is one of his favorite films. He just watched it the other day. Uh, and he said he's also going to have some decent input on, on terms of developing the character and whatnot. So, you know, the fact that, you know, there's actually a finalized script out there gives me such joy because so many idiots were, were out there saying that, you know, oh, they're casting all these people and there's no script. Well, no, that's not the case. They said the script was being worked on as of October of last year. It's been almost seven months now. So let's, you know, let's, let's, let's gather in our thoughts a little bit. So I'm, I'm really excited. And I think you put it best. What was it that you that you texted me? Oh, I was nerding out. I was like, I'd love to know that somewhere out there, somewhere in someone in the world knows the story of this next film, knows how this is all gonna end. It was the same. I think we talked a little bit about a little bit about it with Star Wars too. It's like somebody out there knows what's gonna happen, and that is just a thrilling feeling. It is a thrilling feeling, and it's yeah, I'm just I'm just super excited for this and uh I can't wait. Also, you know, happy birthday, John Reese davies 77 years young Salah. today. Hope he, um, for the love of God, please bring him back for this film. They got him, man. Is it Greatest Digger in Egypt? Or uh, how they, how'd they in phrase Cairo. it? In Cairo. In Cairo. Yeah. In Cairo. But he's not the best, apparently, in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, Just Cairo. <laughs> All right. Five questions. Ball is in your court this week. All right. Thank you, sir. First question. Would you rather... Live for one year on the wall from Game of Thrones or a month in Mordor from Lord of the Rings? <laughs> Give me the wall, please. I'm so much more a fan now of Game of Thrones than Lord of the Rings. And that's one of the reasons why it took me a while to watch Game of Thrones. I thought, hey, man, this science fantasy RPG field type show slash book slash whatever, uh, it's already been scratched, that itch. I don't really need Game of Thrones. And then I watched Game of Thrones. And then I'm like, I don't need Lord of the Rings in my <laughs> life anymore. No, I'm kidding. No, I just uh, screw Mordor. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I think I'd rather be in hell than Mordor. Um, and the Mordor's... wall was so cool. The wall episodes for me for Game of Thrones yeah. were always my favorite. They are pretty. I think they did an excellent de job of depicting the the actual wall itself you know kind of came alive from having read the, the books myself i think i go with you in this case though because at least you can kind of get food and there's fire and there's you know lodging and stuff more yes. there's just like hundreds of miles of desert and you know volcano ash and no food to eat and i don't think you'd survive much so i'm gonna go uh, i'm with you i think i'm gonna go with the wall great question to kick things off question number two is gelato overrated it is underrated Two weeks in Italy for our honeymoon, Lois and I, back in uh, 2008. And we had gelato at a lot of different places, a lot of cities in, in Italy. I love the way they present it, like in those glass cases. Ice cream, it's like you got to dig down deep. You go to an ice cream, you can't see it. They gotta, yep. The guy's got to dig down in there with a spoon. You can't see it. I love the way it's displayed. I love that extra little flavor. And there's just something about it. If you go to places even close to us, like Niagara-on-the-Lake, a couple-hour drive from here, uh, past Niagara Falls, um, they give you like these little servings and then these little spoons too. So you actually, I feel like appreciate each bite a little bit more as opposed to ice cream. You're just freaking, you're just plowing through that thing. Oh, like true. Will Chamberlain. I think I agree with you too. I think it's underrated. I don't get to eat it as much. It's like, I wanted to try some, but there's randomly a bunch of gelato at uh Lasertron. <laughs> and Henrietta like really? that's one of, that's one of their things is like I, we walked in there because I first went to laser Tron with my son and my wife and a couple friends last I think it was last fall and we walk in there yeah there's like 15 flavors of gelato and I'm like what it's also weird because they give you like a, a can of uh energy coffee too because apparently that's a giveaway thing like it's really weird. weird like i loved i love lasertron but it's almost like somebody was throwing some darts at a board about like what other accoutrement we could add to <laughs> the the place itself hey man so, i'm sold 
I'm going there tomorrow now. <laughs> There's a place in Greece, the town of Greece here in Rochester, New York, Orion's Cafe. My mom went there with a couple friends recently, and she says they have gelato there, and it's pretty good. So early cool. recommendation. All right, this one you'll appreciate as a news person. You can we'll bring see. you can bring <laughs> you can bring Walter Cronkite back to cover one news event of the last ten years. What event do you pick? Ah, that's that's a weird question for me because I always thought Walter was a little overrated, shall we say? But <laughs> he's the I'd ice like, cream of newscasts. I'd like to <laughs> I'd like to see how he would have handled. I'd like to see how everyone would have handled just the live. 9-11 coverage the day of because that was so wild and information the came last in so years close time. ah clearly i didn't listen in that <laughs> case because he was alive for 9-11 so the protests would be those are tough to cover though because again you're just describing what you're seeing and you have to you got a lot of live interviews in there i'd like to see how he'd be on his feet because remember when he was there back in the day there wasn't that wall-to-wall 24-hour -wall coverage. I mean, he did mm -hmm. an obviously awesome job with the JFK thing, of course, but um, could he handle like three, four hours on CNN when he's got all this shit flying at him? So yeah. I'm going to say, what am I missing here? Past 10 years, what's a big story? Well, the pandemic, the 2016 election, the death of Prince. You know what? Screw it. Death of Prince just to see how he would have handled it. Okay. The problem with the pandemic is it's lasted so freaking long. Yeah. It's not like one moment. It's just been one long uh Day 1075 of the pandemic. <laughs> now, That's I, pretty good. I, thanks. I think I would have gone with maybe the 2016 election. I think that would have been cool. Or maybe the night of. The night of. The night of. When or everybody maybe, was shell-shocked. Maybe how he if he would have covered the uh, Obama getting or not Obama uh, Osama bin Laden getting killed. I think that would have been interesting too. Yeah, good call. All right, Cheater. four question four. Are protein bars just candy bars, and we are all deluding ourselves? No, there's some there's some. Uh, you know, maybe you got something there, my friend. <laughs> it's like what somebody said. Uh, so community was talking about those those fancy coffee drinks, you know, at Starbucks and all those other cafes. They're like, look, if you got whipped cream, nuts, a cherry and like chocolate sauce, it's not a coffee. It's a milkshake. <laughs> so I guess you could say the same thing about some of the protein bars, but those actually do fill you up pretty good. And as someone who struggled to lose weight, I've actually had some success with being satisfied with those in the morning and not being legitimately hungry until lunch. I have kind of on, on your page, on your same page with this one, because it's, there's kind of a degrees of relativity, relativity here. Yeah. There's some protein bars that are very much protein bars. And there's some protein bars that are very much like, basically, come on, you're just trying to hide yourself behind a candy bar. You're two steps away from being a, a Reese's peanut butter cup. So stop <laughs> kidding. So stop kidding everybody. Knock it so, off a, a Snickers in disguise. Yeah, it is. It's going to bust out and there's nougat. No, but okay. Uh, question five. The last question. You can stand in line and get one book signed from any author, living or dead. Who do you pick? And what's the book? I have a spiritual connection with uh, Pat Conroy's My Losing Season. Ooh. Because my senior year, we went winless for our basketball season, which was, uh, yeah, which I believe was part cursed, part uh, uh, training ground for life. You know, can you deal with Great that book. big blow? Yeah, and when, I, when that book came out, I was like, oh, my God, that's me. I got to get this book, and I loved it. We talked about Conroy before. You and I big, both big fans. I think sentence per sentence, he's phenomenal, one of the best out there, kind of underrated. My mom's always been a big supporter of his. So in that sense, I might go him. Um, autobiography of Malcolm X, obviously it was written by Alex Haley, but that's been an influential book, so I might go that one. Or lastly, another one of my favorites, The Count of Monte Cristo, Mr. Okay. Dumas. That's some great picks. I think I would go. My choices would probably be would probably be uh, the Lords of Discipline, having signed that by yeah. Tom Roy, um, the Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, or the first Game of Thrones book by George R. R. Martin. I think I'd, one of those three would be good. And reflecting on it a little bit more, maybe even uh, Bill Waterson for Kelvin and Hobbes. Mm, not a bad pick either. Just because he's uh, off the grid, nobody knows he is still alive. I presume. I think Last so, I yeah. looked. Yes. All right, Corey. Uh, where does one begin with a film? <laughs> just like, you just start with a sigh. I love it. Dragon Slayer. Here's the first thing I, I put in my notes, uh, for Dragon Slayer. Don't you just love seeing the Paramount logo 
right out of the gate. This is a weird little nostalgic thing that I've noticed when we watch older films is those title sequences. Cause you get the shot that looks like the painting of the mountain. Yep. And then it transitioned in this case into the white on blue, like paramount. I don't know. I just like seeing some of that old school stuff for some movies like Prince of Thieves. It was like seeing new line cinema, which I believe does not exist anymore. Um, yeah. I, I agree. You kind of, you're right. There's some, some kind of nostalgia factor that's associated with it. I always associate the Paramount logo with the Indiana Jones films, because if you notice each one of those films, they morph from the Paramount mountain into some type of structure that's going on in the movie. All four too. All, all four of them do that. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Paramount aspect of this film, because it's the second movie that, Disney actually co-partnered with Paramount on. I think they only did two, this one and, and Popeye. Uh, and it, they, they did, Disney did not do the distribution rights. And everyone was kind of surprised that, that Disney was even associated with this film because of the fact that, you know, they're usually obviously a family type of business. You know, they do Cinderella and all that stuff and the, and the rescuers. But this had a pretty extreme amount of violence for being a PG movie and also, you know, some partial nudity. So I think that threw some people for, for a loop. Yeah, and uh, with me, I have zero history with this film, meaning I don't even remember hearing about it, seeing posters about it growing up. Uh, it wasn't until I think I did maybe a deep dive on Peter McNichol, of all people, like over the years, you know, it's like when he was in Ghostbusters 2 or Ally McBeal, two big, you know, those are pretty much the two big McNichol uh, vehicles, so to speak. Yep. Then it's like, oh, okay, this movie Dragon Slayer. Interesting. Never heard of this. So other than that, this movie, for me anyway, hasn't really been in my universe, but I have to assume it plays a bigger role for you because you've always been like a bigger sci-fi guy. It's a big one for me because I remember watching this when I was 10 years old on HBO, and it was kind of in permanent rotation after the fact. I don't know why so I don't I, remember it. And, and every time it was on, I, I was watching it. Uh, definitely on the rewatch. Uh, I see a lot of glaring f flaws and in, in, in you obviously <laughs> it's a perfect film, Corey. The, the, yeah, right. There's a mountain of bullshit that we can discuss. And, and that, that's great. <laughs> right now, I wish people could see, but you have you have a background for your Zoom that says the worst. And I think that's a little extreme because there's there are some some pleasant moments from the, this film, but it's definitely on the rewatch. Uh, you know, you can you can see some glaring holes for sure. Yeah, the second half, which we'll get into, but the first half, I got to rip the shreds here for just a, for a few minutes. First of all, let's talk about McNichol. I guess he despises this film, like doesn't want to have anything to do with it from what I've read. Um, similar to kind of Fincher and Alien 3, where it's like uh, that one project that one does not speak of. <laughs> That's kind of the case, supposedly, with uh, McNichol in this film. I thought he turned it up a few notches in the, in the second half of the film. The first half is weird because it's almost a little confusing. There's these random group of people. You know a little bit about what their, what their, what their goal is, what their end game is in terms of you know killing this dragon, rescuing the people who have been essentially like kidnapped, right? Yeah. I mean, um, they're basically turning towards this magician in this case, in this case, uh, this fake know, Gandalf, or, if you or, will, was there, you know, I was, I was going to, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's funny. Cause I was watching the film and I'm like, this is like the Coors light version of Gandalf is a uh, Ralph. <laughs> it's Ralph Richardson. Ralph Richardson is as Ulrich of, of Ulrich. Moore, which is, it's so interesting that they even got him to do this because him along with John Gilgood and Lawrence Olivier, this is like the big three of British theater in the 20th century they were like the freaking beatles when See, it i'm unfamiliar with this gentleman is he he's been in a lot of stuff oh, then huh huge he was like a, not so much the movies but very much into the theater you know with with him john gilgood and and lawrence olivia they were the men when it when it came to the british theater th scene in the 20th century but he definitely brings a a, a, a playfulness a degree of, of gravitas you know like when he's describing the the actual dragon itself you know it becomes pitiful spiteful it knows only pain but then it's also funny sometimes when he like he gets reanimated at the end of the film when galen throws the, yes. the, the, his ashes into the lake of fire which that whole layer looks so super cool by the way he comes out and he says you don't have anything to eat by any chance with you i always, I always thought that that was that was funny but it's interesting that you say that peter mcnichol doesn't like this film because 
uh, you know, for me, it's one of the things that I associate with him besides that. And, you know, Ghostbusters too. And he really put us all into this film. I mean, he learned two different types of horseback riding. You know, he worked with a guy named Harold Taylor, who was a magician, a magician who uh, served the Royal family for, for years. So he definitely put us all into this, this performance. I thought, I thought he, he did a very good job. The failings of this movie have nothing to do with him. <laughs> well, I think it all goes back to, what I what I like to bring up a lot, which is sometimes I don't think it is the actor's fault. Sometimes I think it's the director's fault. I think that was the, that's been kind of the debate within my weird little universe with Hayden Christensen in uh, episode two and three of the Star Wars prequels is, and even Natalie Portman too is like how much of it is George Lucas's fault and how much is how much of it is their fault when you don't have these guys kind of redo a scene or maybe when you have a medium shot instead of when you should have a close-up so you can see kind of the nuances and what these guys are bringing to the table. I think in the first half of this film with Schertz, McNichol's performance and some of the others is the first thing I noticed is the audio dubbing is uh, we seem to be on a mountain kick here, a pile of dog shit. Uh, (laughs) We all remember the flashback scene from Bloodsport with a young Frank Dukes. Oh God. Where he's like, what kind of a deal? You're not going to call the cops. Remember? And it was like, Oh my gosh, this is awkward. There was a lot of scenes and I, and I watched it on your voodoo account. So it wasn't like I popped in some old school VHS. The audio dubbing was really bad. So that I think hurts the performance a little bit. Um, McNichol. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's some camera movements. I didn't like, which really kind of brought out his, his uh, acting ability. I think there wasn't just a whole lot of room for him to maneuver and, and, uh, and kind of work his magic, so to speak. But it's, but then that second half kicks in and I think you get more emotion out of him. He's got a lot more to do. (laughs) And once there's that sense of purpose and clearly he's the central figure at that point, then I think like you see that acting potential and you see probably why he was chosen for this film. And it's interesting because you see him as a character who's not necessarily noble or heroic, but he acts brave when he has to. And he's clearly terrified to go in there and face the dragon. He has so much more confidence when he thinks things are going well when he has has the amulet. But you, you kind of have to respect what he was able to do because he's not the prototypical, you know, six foot six knight who's going in there to slay the dragon type situation. Right. He's, he, he's definitely different. I think you, I think you're right on the money though, that the second half of his performance is better because he kind of grows into that hero role. And I think there's that, that great kind of interchange that he has um, with Ulrich where he says, uh, you know, you, I was supposed to be strong. I wasn't, you know, like this kind of back and forth. And he says, but you were, and you're going to be, you know, stronger still. But I think the problem is we don't, here's what's weird is the fact that with a lot of fantasy films, especially nowadays, it's epic fantasy. It's long format storytelling. You look at the Lord of the Rings, they're all three hours of piece. This one's under two hours. So there's not a lot of character development, which is kind of a shame because I remember reading the, uh, the novelization of this movie. And there was a lot more backstory to Galen. You know, you don't know from the movie that he's an orphan, that he had an older sister that died, that he's, you know, struggled to be a magician his whole life. There's so many more <laughs> elements that, that were, that should have been in play here. So you don't feel as maybe as a yes. connection as you should have. There's a lack of, of, of character development that's, you know, the decidedly lacking and, you know, not for nothing, you've got to blame in this case, this, the screenwriting of, you know, Hal, I'm sorry. Uh, in this case, the, the screenwriting of <clears throat> Hal Barwood and, and Matthew Robbins, it's, it's a little weak. Yeah. Matthew Robbins. So Matthew Robbins wrote it and directed it, correct? Right. So Matthew Robbins, uh, it was, he's mostly, he was involved a lot of the new wave. He's a lot of a, a doing like a script doctor work. You know, I love the, life. I love mimic the film he did, yeah. uh, with, with uh, uh Mira Servino. Yep. With the uh, Guillermo del Toro also worked on Crimson Peak, but he worked a lot with, uh, Spielberg in the seventies with Sugarland Express, Jaws, uh, he's close encounters of the third kind, but he doesn't, didn't do a lot of directing. And just cause you write, doesn't necessarily mean you transition while the directing. This, this is only a second feature after Corvette summer starring Mark, Mark Hamill, which was a movie about cars. And he suddenly decides that he's going to do this, this epic fantasy. And it just, you know, it, I was trying to figure it's, out it's what lacking. it is about that. Yes. I was trying to figure out what it is about that first half of the film. Like, what is it? And I think, I, here's what I like what they did. They throw you right into the action mm-hmm. almost too much to the point where 
I don't really know what's going on. Them. I don't really care. I don't have any history with these characters. Even Galen, Peter McNichols' character, he says, yeah. just random apprentice you don't know much about. You're not really that invested into really his fate at this point. I mean, you remember, you and I are coming from different points, too. Is this, You've seen this tons of times probably over the years, and you saw it when you were younger. Where I'm coming to it for the first time, and like I always say, I'm a big advocate of, you got to see a movie more than once. So shame on me for only seeing it the one time. But that's what I picked up on is, A, they throw you right into the action, which is a good thing. B is you don't care about anybody. You don't know what this world is like. What's the, is this is this supposed to be like medieval times? I think there's like some, some Christianity references, possibly, if I recall. Um, but yet there's dragons. It's I don't know. It's more like the characters are whimsically interesting rather than giving you any type of full investment. You know, they're quirky, so they're kind of cool to watch, but that's about it. And I think what you're driving at is is kind of what Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins did. You know, this this is medieval, but it's not your typical medieval that you see. There's not a lot of castle aspects, not a lot of, you know, you know, flying ribbons and, and knights and stuff. And even they said, you know, there, there's a quote, a quote for them about how they wanted to approach it. Cause they had this kind of wanted to do this, like St. George and the dragon crossover with the sorcerer's apprentice from Fantasia thing. And it said, you know, our film has no knights in shining armor, no pennants streaming in the breeze, no delicate ladies with diaphanous veils waving from their turreted castle castles, no courtly love, no Holy grail. Instead, we set out to create a very strange world with a lot of weird values and customs steeped in superstition where the clothes and manners of the people were rough, their homes and villages primitive, and their countryside almost primeval, so that the idea of magic would be a natural part of, of their existence. And to their credit, I think they succeeded in doing that. It's just such a complete 180 from what we're used to seeing when it comes to medieval stuff that it's hard to stomach. I mean, this is set in the sixth century. It's just post-Romans leaving Britain. Christianity really hasn't made a, a name for itself in Britain at this point. I mean, the country itself is called Erland. It's obviously a, a magical kingdom that was made up in this case, but you don't even see Christianity except for um, Ian McDermott's brother, Jacobus, I, I believe. So it's a different take that I don't think everybody, you're either with it or you're not when it comes to the world that they've created, I think. Yeah, I guess when you say it like that, it makes more sense. But in terms of like the naked eye and just that raw, what'd you think of it for the first watch? That first half for me is just, all right, when are we going to see this dragon that like Peter Jackson and all these like big names have touted as setting the stage for dragons uh, to come? That Tyrion guy I thought was, by the way, some of the names are interesting. Valerian, Tyrion. Is, I, is George R. R. Martin influenced that, by this? So that's where that came to, because I wrote a, a sheet uh, that we'll get into. And there's a Jon Snow and a no, Tywin <laughs> Lannister? No. I actually wrote a sheet down that was like wall of bullshit to talk about with this movie. And one of the things <laughs> I did notice is that even though the spellings are different, you know, the one asshole uh, knight there who basically... Tyrion. Wishes, yeah, Tyrion, which is spelled differently than the Tyrion you see in, in Game of Thrones. You know, the guy wishing he was in some type of, you know, 80s back to school John Cusack bullshit where he's the villain but he's somehow stuck in a medieval movie. You almost had that big Kylo Ren hair going on like it was yeah. blow dried for a couple hours. It's all over the place. Yeah, he did he did do that and then the <laughs> other the other you know the fact that the other thing was the was um uh Caitlin Clark's role uh she was named Valerian and then there's Valerian Steel that's in Game of Thrones again spelled differently. So I don't know if they got any type of you know, if, if there was any type of uh, influence there, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if if he was. I do think that John Hallam, who played Tyrion, played a great asshole. I think he was great in that. Acting in that wise, role. pound for pound, I thought he was the best and most believable. I'd love the part where he says, you know, becomes a doubter, and it's like, oh, the the signs are wrong, the stars are unaligned. We don't do tests, and I just love that part where he's kind of challenging the whole situation. You know, I I, I actually was going to bring that up next because I thought he said planets not being aligned. I'm like, are we sure these guys are like in the world where there's planets yet at this point? <laughs> like, do they know about Saturn and all well, this stuff? The planets are aligned. My, I'm like, really? My favorite planet's the sun. <laughs> 
but no, the, the I want to get to the dragon stuff because I think Peter Jackson had mentioned he liked the way the dragon was created and the way they presented it. The special effects really were, other than a few green screen moments near the end there, where they're on the mountaintop during like the one final battle mm-hmm. where fake Gandalf comes back. Um, other than a few green screen moments there, I thought the special effects all around were really good, especially considering 1981. I mean, the dragon looked great. I love the way they built it up. Like you, you kind of referenced Jaws as a, uh, you know, similar to Jaws and how you don't see it right away. They build a little suspense, a little momentum. Um, at first, when you first see him, you just see like kind of the outline of his head behind uh, Ian McDermott there. And then all of a sudden you see him a lot during the last like 20 minutes or so. He's flying around. That I thought that looked pretty sharp. Um, there was a couple of good close-ups of him where I liked the design of the dragon, which pretty much every dragon has looked like since. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, for me, a couple thumbs up for, for the special effects here. And that's probably what this movie is best. That's probably one of the main legacies of the film. Well, I think that's probably much, pretty much the highlight of this film. And if you're going to yeah. have a movie called Dragon Slayer, you better bring the dragon game pretty harshly. And I think it starts <laughs> with, this is maybe the best name ever for a dragon, Vermithrax Pejorative. The freaking dragon has a last name. But they, did they is, say pejorative in the film? Yes. Okay, yes. okay. Because I saw Vermithrax it on Wikipedia, the, but there has been mm-hmm. a couple other films where we've mentioned like a last name. And I'm like, I don't think they ever mention it in the film. Yeah, they mentioned, she, he mentions it early on the, um, the, the, as fake Gandalf, as you said. It's like when they say those made-up names where it's like, hey, your poor name is your, your childhood street name <laughs> and like the name of your second dog or whatever. <laughs> That's Vermithrax Well, I, I think you're running the money, though, when it comes to the special effects. I mean, ILM worked for eight months after the film wrapped to get this right. You know, they used this um, type of um, sequence and, circum- and, and uh, form of stop motion called go motion, uh, which is created by Phil Tippett. He actually created it, developed it for Empire Strikes Back. And it's basically kind of you have this motion blur into each frame where there's motion so kind of paints it more so it looking like the the dragon is flying and that's why i think the the um actual special effects is so strong but you also can't ignore the fact that there's a 40 foot model that they created with 16 dragon puppets you know all different types of levers and things that, that were being pushed here and there they used real world war ii flame f- flamethrowers uh for the fire from vermithrax pejorative and so from from that standpoint uh, the way that they presented him, the, you know, he just comes out as this such evil creature. I mean, when you see Galen go into that lair, which is all constructed, by the way, I mean, it's literally like he's descending into the mouth of hell. So hats off to them. I think they did a great job when it came to the special effects. And one of the things that I've really grown to appreciate, and I think I would have mentioned in recent uh, episodes, is just cinematography and lighting because it's, Every time, if I, if you click on any kind of YouTube video or you read anything from a director or a photographer, one of the main takeaways is that lighting is so underrated. And if you can, if you can figure that out, that's like an absolute game changer that changes momentum. And in this case, it's Derek Van Lint, who mm-hmm. does a really nice job lighting a lot of these scenes. Alien. He did Alien. The man. The Man from Alien. And those are tough movies to do because there's so much darkness around. And Mm -hmm. light can't seem like it's... It can't seem... I think Roger Deakins said something like that. It can't seem like there's an imaginary light coming from nowhere that's lighting somebody's face. Like, it has to come from outside or or a candle or it has to see, it has to be legit in other words. And I think there's a lot of time spent in these caves and it's dark. Obviously this is before electricity and Van Lint, I think does a really good job uh, with the, with some of those dark areas, but also the, uh, like the landscape stuff too. Like clearly they're not in Chicago filming this. Yeah. I mean, this is the, Hey, it's a role reversal here, Luke, because this is the first time you've, you've pulled from me what I was going to say. I'm glad you, 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 you laid it out there because Van strike Lint, back, strike back. Van Lint is, is amazing. And I like how you referenced the whole lighting thing. I feel like there's a lot of natural light being shown here. Yeah. And even, even if there's not, they're doing a great job of hiding the fact because you know, there's so much shadow, especially at Craig and or if you're in the castle itself or you're at the, the lair, even inside the home of the blacksmith there, are, there's, you know, 
just fire is such a pervasive thing, whether it's candles, whether it's torches, it's all over the place. But you're right. Most of this was shot in, uh, I believe it was North, North Wales. So you've got that old school kind of British feel to it. I mean, it really has that, that, that air of realism to it. And it's very captivating. You have all these sweeping vistas. You get the sense, even though this movie is kind of short in terms of time span, that this is very much kind of an, an epic type of fantasy tale. Um, and I really much like that about it because I think that Van, Van Lint did a great job of, of having that Jaws effect when it came to the dragon. Now, not showing, just, just giving a little bit of sizzle before he got to the stake. And the way he captures all that's brilliant, especially the final fight between Galen and the dragon. And also as well, the final fight between Ulrich and, and the dragon where he's, you know, brought, you know, drawn up into the air and then literally just blows up when, when Galen destroys that, that necklace. I want to get back to Tyrion for a second while it's on mine because, you know, we mentioned before one of the, in my opinion, the best acting from anyone in this film, uh, but also a great a douchebag. And you need the douchebags to kind of root against because the King, I wasn't a big fan of. He looked like a drunk Tom Petty. Uh, looks like he never picked up a sword in his life. Didn't seem very noble, lackluster moral compass. I'm going to go ahead and say maybe worst king of all time. Well, here's the thing. Like, and that was one of my, don't defend this guy. Oh no, no. That was one of my things on my list of bullshit (laughs) is the fact that Peter, uh, Irie, or I, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Irie or Irie, uh, as King Cassiodorus, Cassiodorus, he looks like he's permanently on Xanax. Like, yeah, he, he doesn't look like he's had a real emotion in probably 20 years. It, it's just like you mean to tell me this guy's called the shots in a battle. Uh, uh-uh, I'm not I'm buying it. I wouldn't ha- I wouldn't have that guy call call shots at a bar. I mean, <laughs> let alone leading an entire kingdom. So, but that Tyrion guy, though, back to that. Uh, the one he's like, this is no warrior. There's always that scene, right? It's yeah. like anytime somebody says that, you know, the guy's. The guy's going to die. And he jinxed himself. Weird death scene, too, because Galen, like, stabs him through that, what was it, like a pole or something? Like a post. Yeah. Yeah, where they like. Tied the virgins to there to sacrifice to Vermithrax. Poor virgins in these movies, right? No, but yeah. the Tyrion guy, all the, I keep saying the Tyrion guy. That was his name. It's Tyrion. No reason for the guy. Tyrion is just standing behind the post. And I, I, I get it. Like, he didn't think the, what, that was the dragon slayer that got him, wasn't it? Yeah, the, 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 spear. the spear. The spear goes through the post and stabs him. And he seemed caught off guard. Was he not thinking that maybe the thing could go through the post? Was he thinking that because the post wasn't very big, no. so you think you'd kind of move at some point? And he just kind of, I don't know. That was just a weird. That was an odd death. I was a little I, disappointed. I, I guess for oh, somebody I need more flair and flash for his death. For a guy who's clearly a better warrior than anybody else around him, for him to not bob and weave and get out of the way of the post seems kind of ridiculous. And maybe he underestimated Galen as a warrior, which maybe rightly so. But the fact that he just got killed in such a unceremonious fashion is kind of interesting. The biggest, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just saw that moment, was clearly the skinny dipping scene. Ah, yes. Peter McNichol swimming over to the girl, thought was a dude. Uh, A fantastically stupid scene, in my opinion. For one, first of all, there's the Nirvana Nevermind album cover reference here. I was thinking, I was like, man, I wonder if that's where they got the album cover idea from. No, I'm kidding. But you can actually kind of see McNichol's junk, if I'm not mistaken. Clearly, you see his ass before he jumps into a water. So once again, Corey, uh, two of the last like six movies we've done in, uh, includes a dude's ass. You're welcome. In medieval times. So thank you very much for that. Well, I don't know if this was a stand-in ass like Kevin Costner or if that was McNichol's real ass. I did not get to that in my research. I did not either, and I did not care to. But I'm glad you brought up the scene because, again, this was part of my wall of bullshit scenes. Is the fact that let's talk about Valerian uh, for a second, which, by the way, played great by Caitlin Clark. She's so you know innocent and endearing, and I just, I, yeah. you know, but at the same time, heroic and, and nice. Again, I think her character could have been built up more. But here's the thing: there is no way she passes for a guy for no way. odd years. She is freaking clearly a gorgeous, gorgeous woman. She's a knockout, and a Apparently, and from that, uh, you know, skinny dipping scene, she clearly has the body of Scarlett Johansson. So it's like, come on, man, you're going to need to get to ug her up a little bit more if you're going to get me to buy that she's passing for a man. 
Well, the weird like, thing is not believable. The weird thing. No, I totally agree. And the weird thing too, is he swims over to her. So, okay. Clearly you guys are both naked and he's underwater. And I love that. It's, it's almost guy. I almost spit up when I saw that scene because all of a sudden he gets all flabbergasted like, and flips out and, you know, swims backwards and gets out of the water. Once he's like Cooper, like, when he's under the water, seeing the shark tooth <laughs> in the head, right? Well, he sees like the breast, but then I'm like, okay, if it was a dude, were you really going to swim that close underwater, like that close to his junk? That's like, a good if, point. I'd be, I, you know, it's like, what did you expect was going to happen? Like, what, what else was going to happen in the next 10 seconds? I don't know. That was just kind of weird for me. The other um, thing I noticed too, is like the <laughs> pond, the pond is clearly like brown. And like the underwater scene, it's like suddenly it's crystal clear. California the, pool. The, the Bahamas? I mean, it just, okay. Yeah, that was funny though. That was a interesting scene. And it's weird to think that that was in a Disney movie. And that scene and the other, other kind of gross scene was where the baby dragons are like Ooh. chewing on the princess's uh, leg there. Yeah. I mean, that thing was, that was gross. Not very Disney-esque. Yeah, it was pretty gross. And it's it's funny how that whole scene with the dragon babies ran the gamut between disturbing and just ridiculously dumb because you know they're they're chowing they're chowing on her right there and then galen's fighting him and that one that third one surprises him at the end like a gremlin and just like gets up on him but it's so clear that he's fighting with a puppet that it just it looks kind of ridiculous and again yeah. listen i'm i've been you know we've both been spoiled by the developments of cgi and, and special effects over the last 15 to 20 years to the point where it's almost seamless like scarily seamless but at the same time man it's just like jesus that's clearly a puppet what are you doing yeah and in their defense though too as as lois my wife pointed out when we rewatched raiders when you know the girls watched the the whole almost trilogy is that even in some of those classics like the special effects there's always a little bit to be desired like with raiders when the uh, the nazis melt at the end in retrospect yeah. you go back i mean that looks a little little cheesy it's almost that used to kind of scare me growing up now i look but it just looks like an ice cream cone melting like it's yeah. almost ridiculous and then even in jaws there was a couple of those scenes that we talked about when we did the episode on it is it looks like it's just a big you know fake shark sitting on a boat not very scary um when what's his face kind of gets sucked into it and eaten so and then so this is kind of like almost par in that sense. But other than that, the special effects still, I thought they were, were, were pretty sharp. So that Speak, and the green screen. Speaking of looking stupid and off kilter, I, you, you can't, I, again, I chuckled when I saw Ian McDermott get killed because when he gets burned, <laughs> yeah. there's a quick cut from him, from him to like, what's clearly a mannequin being burned alive. And oh, then right. Back to, yeah. And then back to some guy like, you know, walking around on flames. And I'm just like, oof, it, it just does not come out good. And can we listen, you mentioned it, but dragon slayer, the spear itself. Listen, so cool. When it was revealed, he's, you know, pulling it out of, of the river, but a couple yeah, that of things. was weird. It's just sitting down. Why there. have you, why have you hidden it? And two, why are you hiding a weapon that's made of metal in water where it can clearly rust? Like maybe I'm just getting a little too in the weeds on this one. But I think they, they definitely, they, it seems like they had to been, they were trying to be over dramatic, right here. Let's let me unsheath this large spear that's hiding in water yeah it's not like it's taking up a lot of space i mean you can put it in the corner of the cave and it's just kind of hanging out there that was weird my another beef i had and i was curious to see what you thought so ulrich is ulrich is that how you pronounce it ulrich ulrich, ulrich. the fake gandalf we've been calling him you know that one of the big like twists i guess you could call it is is near the end there when galen's like oh i see that's why he you know, that's why we're going to spread his ashes. And it's like he couldn't make the journey because he's too old and he wasn't, you know, fit to. So this is kind of like his way around it. Why wouldn't Ulrich just tell him that at the beginning? So it wasn't such a big mystery. That was kind of weird for me. Like, just let, like, oh, look, it. here's the deal. I can't make this journey. This is what's going to go down. I, I think the point of that was to try to get Galen to start to believe in himself and his own abilities that if Ulrich, that's if, a big risk to freaking take. Yeah. If Ulrich isn't there for him to fall back on, he's got to be confident enough in the studies he's done, the magic he's learned, the amulet to, to take up his, his, his mantle, which to his credit, that's what he tried to 
tries to do. He tries to be that, that wizard. So, I mean, I think he, maybe he felt that if he knew about that, that it would have been, been too much of a burden. If he would have been too worried to get gotten too inside of his own head and, and sh- be scared of screwing up. And I'm sure that was probably in the original screenplay too. But when you're actually watching the film, I feel like a lot of that stuff doesn't translate. So you kind of just have to come up with that on your own, which sounds like you probably did, even though you read the thing. But yeah, I don't know. That was just, that didn't sit necessarily well with me when all of a sudden he's running through the woods and what's her face is following Galen. And they always do that, right? As like part of a movie trope. Yeah. Like they don't just, he Where could just stop going? and tell her. Right. <laughs> and, and you as a viewer are like, Ooh, what's he know that we don't. What else yeah. jumped out at you on the uh, the rewatch, Mr. Cook? Uh, I think we kind of touched on it before, but I, I really dug uh, the score by Alex North. I think it was, you know, no coincidence that he got nominated for a best uh, Oscar or a best or an Academy Award for the score. I thought it was very playful, but almost kind of had that prototypical, almost like proto Lord of the Rings score thing going to it, that it was equal parts heroic, but other times very chilling, especially with the dragon scenes. And he, what's amazing to me is the fact that he did this in six weeks. He did, he wrote this score in six weeks. So don't tell me that you can't make something amazing in a short amount of time when you're pushed. And what I thought was equally interesting too, is that I, I forgot that he did the score as well for 2001 and some of the rejected stuff from 2001, he ended up using in this film. For example, the, their, the, whole, Dawn, the whole Dawn of Man sequence where uh, in, in 2001 was actually supposed to be scored. And it, he decided Stanley Kubrick decided to do it without any type of music. So he kind of reworked that for part of the dragon flight scenes, uh, which I thought was, was really interesting. So I thought the, the score is particularly memorable. You know, I really dug the final battle. I thought that was, that was, that was pretty awesome. The dragon obviously is, is, is a highlight. And I thought that the set design uh, was, was absolutely excellent um and i really dug you know we i wish i would have spent it was one of those places you wish you would have spent more time at but like Cragenmore itself was so cool looking and that's actually a real castle that you can go to it's called uh dull widdeland castle which is in wales uh but i just i don't know there's there's some there's a lot of bullshit in this movie but there's a lot of things to i think appreciate and 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 admire that second half or that uh third act as you called it really saves the film. Yeah, because even just looking at my notes, the tone changes drastically once Palpatine, uh, as we'll call him, I guess, gets fried. Gets freaking fried. Then it, the movie really ramps up, starts to get good. The first half of the movie, I, I wrote it down a couple times, there was like a B-movie vibe lingering throughout. And I think some of that, ironically was due to the, the choice of music that they used in that first half, too, because it was, at the beginning, I mean, you said playful, and I would agree with that. It was also a tad goofy a little bit at times, almost mm-hmm. distractingly so. But again, then there was that heroic-type score that kind of kicked in in the second half when it was when really it was called for. So I like to see a movie where I'm shitting on it for the first half, but then the second half it kind of redeems itself in my eyes. So kudos to uh, the entire crew for that. What's... I, what I remember, too, is that you kind of have to c- consider this movie in the context of other 80s fantasy films because all of them have kind of a similar trope or feel to them. There's almost there's a lot of this connective tissue that I think starts off with Dragon Slayer. If you look at, uh, you know, The NeverEnding Story, if you look at The Dark Crystal, if you look at Legend, if you look at Labyrinth. Even maybe Willow a little bit, too. Even, yeah, even Willow. You could if you. If, if you had never seen any of those films before and you showed them to someone, I think if, if you asked them what, a, what decade did, did these all go in, I think most people would be able to rightly point out with the 80s. There's just a kind of similar motifs, feels, uh, you know, and it's not any coincidence that a lot of the set design and costume design for all of these movies was done by the same companies as well. One more bullshit thing I'd like to point out is that I think every one of my friend's mothers growing up in the 80s, had the same hair as Peter McNichol in here at some point, <laughs> that like perm going on. What did you think of his hairstyle? Um, that was, uh, that was something, uh, <laughs> you know, it, I've seen better haircuts, uh, but again, but not, rarely. Passing, not passing any judgment. Uh, that's a, 
Yeah, I, I agree. It's funny that you mentioned that whole the historical context of that with with your with your family because um, yeah, no one has really no one's flashing really great haircuts in this in this film at all. No way, uh, absolutely not. One one Except thing I did want to get one thing I did yeah one thing I did want to get your take on what did you what did you think of the fact or how did you react to the fact that uh, uh, Chloe Salomon as a Princess Elspeth that she discovers that she's never been part of that lottery. So she puts her name on all the tiles. I thought that was kind of equal parts, noble, uh, heroic, and incredibly stupid. I, I couldn't agree more. It felt like a mat- like mature writing that they included that. They add in those little things, which kind of paints a picture of what the society's like too. Cause one of my big beefs with a lot of films is no cops. This- no cops. And does it feel like there's actual community? That was one of the big things with Lady Hawk, remember, that we kind of that we that we tickled a little bit was no community here. It's like this bishop who's pissed and he's got like his right hand man. And then where's all the villagers and what are they up to? And why is he so worried about this weird little kingdom like in the middle of nowhere? And when you when they when they when you're able to flesh out like the community and the village a little bit more which prince of thieves does really well mm-hmm. uh it just lends to the believability so no that was cool how they did that because there definitely was a sense of community i think yeah in this film. definitely you know, and direct, the sense of, even the crew at the beginning that's like seeking help almost yeah, a it, fellowship if you will it feels like a family because you feel the impact that this dragon is having on them you know raising yes. raising the you know the fields and their crops and, and taking away their daughters and things and, and things like that you you get that sense that this is a trauma as as you know maybe grandiose is this to say but it's a trauma that's being shared by the entire community one of the big beefs about uh lord of the or excuse me game of thrones that people who haven't seen it yet is eh, i don't know if i want to feel I, I don't feel like watching like a, a show about dragons and all that and what do we always have to say is they're really not in it that much minute per minute like as a percentage of the show until the later seasons really and the beauty of game of thrones i think sometimes is one of the beauties of course is that when they do show the dragons and they do show their power you're kind of in awe of what they accomplish and that's the case here and i think they did it terrifically the way they kind of slow rolled the whole dragon even again when palpatine gets it you don't see the whole dragon yeah. You just Can see I mean, kind of the camera pan up and you clearly he's looking at it, right? Like that Laura Dern uh whatchamacallit look in Jurassic Park when they see the Sauruses for the first time. Mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna make a bold prediction. Uh a bold maybe prediction? a little hot take hot Uh-oh. take on this. I think House of the Dragon is going to be better than Game of Thrones. I, I know that's that may sound crazy to some people, but I've read the whatever you're drinking. Do they have any more left at Wegmans? I'm you? telling you, I'm telling you, I've read the story behind the whole because the, the, the great thing about House of the Dragon is the fact that all the material that they're going to be basing this on has a beginning, middle and end. It's all written. It's all contained. It's all there. So Ooh. you're not having you're not having to worry about, you know, people bitching about what's going to, you know, the, the end, you know, the, the, the whoever. Well, now um, it comes to storytelling. Though. Dan how are and they Dave gonna, screwed things up. How are uh, they going to lay this thing out, though? That's going to be the big challenge. I have a good feeling that it's going to be very, very, very popular. I'm it, confident. It's going to be confident. good. I'm confident. One more last thing on this. Uh, my friends used to hate me for doing this crap back in the day, back in the 90s. You know, you rent a movie. Usually back then it was VHS. And if there was a goofy scene or some weird little mannerism that somebody did, I would have to get the remote and I would have to rewind it and watch the scene like four or five times. My friends would hate when I would do that. There was a scene where I did that in here. You know which scene it was? It was at the ending. They're walking along. The, the, the dragon's vanquished. And then you hear, I just wish we had a horse. And they look up <laughs> on the hill. The horse, the horse. The horse, appear, horse appears. But then it gets weird. Because then Galen looks at her. She looks back at him. And then he gives out that goofy little laugh. Do you remember that? It's yeah. kind of like a... <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> almost like Goofy the dog from the Disney cartoons. And it was just a really odd scene. Folks, I'm telling you. Based on this pod, if you haven't seen this movie... Based on what we've been shooting out there, you're probably not going to want to go back and watch maybe, but please just watch that last like minute or so. 
just for that at least that the swimming the skinny dip scene and of course the third act and any scene with um peter mcnichols perm okay now for the leo mckern award this one should be interesting tonight uh this of course is named for the lovable drunk imperious from lady hawk 1985 it's an award we like to give to the character we would most like to have as a neighbor in real life Corey cook who do you like living next door from uh dragon slayer Ulrich of Craganmore. Uh, I think it would just be really cool living next to a wizard, even if he is knockoff Gandalf. And, you know, yeah, but he can do some some magic. Maybe he can conjure me up a sandwich or something. I think it would be cool. And he seems like a guy that he'd, he'd be, you know, nice to just chill and, and listen to some history of uh, the medieval world. So. Agreed. Yeah, I don't think there's anybody even close who I'd want. Maybe Tyrion for his bullshit, but we'll see. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time once again for Luke and Corey's recommendations. We could be recommending anything here. It could be movies, could be novels, could be nonfiction work, could be comic books, could be music, could be an amazing dessert that we had. Anything and everything is up for grabs. Luke, what are some of your recommendations this week? I never start with food. I'm starting with food this time. This chicken and shrimp carbonara at Olive Garden, exquisite. It is to die for. It is out of this world. People rip on Olive Garden all the time. It's not real Italian food. It's good. Knock it off. There's people in third world countries that would kill for Olive Garden. So put the put the the uppityness aside for just a little bit. Actually go there and try some of their food and try the chicken and shrimp carbonara. It's exquisite. They, I love uh, Olive Garden. They actually got rid of one of my favorite meals that they had there i don't know if they brought it back it was uh steak gorgonzola gorgonzola alfredo it was delish it was like these steak medallions that they you know you cooked you know to order i'd always got them i got a medium and it was just oh, it's amazing fantastic no yeah, i want I, I, I love uh, olive garden who doesn't like the breadsticks that are you know ten thousand calories and unlimited yeah that's a great idea make me more fat why not by the time you get to the main course you're kind of full yeah, it's like I've just filled up on 20 breadsticks. I'm good. Check, please. I'd, I'd like my fourth strawberry lemonade. Thank you. Um, <laughs> all right. So my first recommendation uh, is for a film that came out uh, last year. It was one of the last films released in the theater before the pandemic hit that I finally got a chance to see. It was called The Gentleman by director Guy Ritchie, uh, starring ah. Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnam, uh, and also um, uh, Colin Farrell. And it is absolutely fantastic if you I like love, that cast yes it's a great cast if you love old school guy Ritchie, this is where it's at you know it follows this uh, american played by matthew mcconaughey named mickey who's basically a uh, a weed king in great britain he's an expat a former road scholar and he's basically looking to kind of sell his kingdom before weed becomes legitimate and just all these odd assortment of of characters that come into play people are trying to take his piece of the pie it's savage it's funny colin farrell gives an amazing performance mcconaughey is great i highly recommend it it's an amazing amazing movie i gotta check that out my next recommendation is i'm going the music route here tlc's first album many folks from my era Hell, the second album, mostly because of the big uh, uber-popular song, Waterfalls. But the group's debut, man. Never heard of it. It's colorful. <laughs> Are you serious? No, I'm kidding. Oh, it's colorful, man. There's all these samples, all kinds of personalities spilling out of that album. So my recommendation is jump on Spotify and check out TLC's debut. All right. My next recommendation is another movie. It's the 2020 film The Father. It was the last film of the nine, I believe eight or nine, that were nominated for the Oscars that I finally got to see, uh, directed by Florian Zeller and starring Anthony Hopkins and uh, Olivia Coleman. Anthony Hopkins obviously won the uh, Best Actor Award in a big surprise upset over Chadwick Boseman. But this is a devastating film to watch, especially if you've ever had anybody in your family who's had Alzheimer's or had to go through it, you know, Hopkins captures to a T what it's like. And this was adapted from a play. And what's interesting is that it's all from the perspective of the main character in this case, in this case, uh, who has Alzheimer's. So characters and places and whatever gets, gets jumbled up. So it's almost like you're experiencing his confusion uh, at, at the same time. And I had a, a grandmother who, you know, saw this disease ravage her for years. So it was, a, it, it hit home pretty emotionally. And I'll say this, I still think, 
that Chadwick Boseman gave a better performance and he deserved the Oscar, but I'll put it in a context that maybe some sports fans can understand. Uh, if Chadwick Boseman hit a three-run home run, Anthony Hopkins hit a two-run home run. It was neck and neck. So if anybody else had to win this, it, it probably was deserved to be Anthony Hopkins. My next recommendation, also a movie, but nothing in the realm of uh, what you were just touting. This one is uh, the Frank Grillo vehicle, literally, Wheelman. It's on Netflix. I love Frank Grillo. I love that rugged, like, I almost compare him to, like, a modern-day Van Damme, not because of his style or anything like that, but because he always kind of plays these nomads, these likable dudes who are a little gruff. Uh, you wouldn't mess with in a bar you want to see a little bit more of because there's some mystery there tons of anxiety in this film where he's basically i don't want to blow it for you but um kind of like a driver similar to uh to to our boy in drive um ryan gosling a uh, driver for for criminals and stuff like that so it's uh, tons of anxiety i compare it to uncut gems mm. to a point in terms of the anxiety you're like oh my gosh this guy and a lot of the sh- a lot of it's shot inside the car and it feels like you're driving with him and he's talking on the phone and he's looking out for dudes who are trying to hunt him down it just has that it gets your heart beating man so wheelman on netflix is worth checking out Cool. Uh, my third recommendation uh, is another film. It's uh, another round. Uh, the Danish film uh, that was nominated and won for Best International Feature, directed by Thomas Vinterberg, and starring our boy Mads Mikkelsen. Love what him. you know. Don't let the fact that this is movie in subtitle scary away. What a magnificent, funny, a heartfelt, gut wrenching film this is about. Uh, middle age, about losing your spark, gaining your spark, passion, rekindling, um, adventure, you know, trying to kind of savor that idea, the idea, the, you know, the cons, you know, the, the, bo- the bonds that you have as, as friends, as, as teachers, it basically follows this group of four people that one of them is a psych, uh, psychologist or teach psychology, that there is a uh, particular psychologist who believes or put forth this theory that man was built with a uh, blood alcohol content that was 0.05 too low. So this, this person, this, um, this uh, the therapist, Finn Skarderug is his name, uh, basically proposed this. So they all decide, these four middle-aged teachers at this high school decide, hey, we're going to start drinking during the day and try to keep our blood alcohol level at a certain effect. And it influences their lives in a positive way until it doesn't. And uh, that it's just, it's fantastic. Here, the great thing too is this is a phenomenal performance by Mads Mikkelsen. Anybody out there who thinks that he's just good at playing villains, and granted he is, this is this this will set you straight. I mean, he just plays this middle-aged dad who's kind of lost his zest for life and his relationship with his wife. And it's just there's so many different layers. It's emotional, it's heartfelt, it's endearing, and it ends on such a triumphant positive note of the idea of just celebrating life oh. and that you need to continue to do that and 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 it, it express that. All the time. It was just so uplifting and ending. I can't recommend this movie. No Where can we catch this? If you have Hulu, you can watch it there. It's on Hulu. Wow. And I wonder, it's you got to be able to get it on Amazon too, right? Or is it strictly a Hulu thing? I, I it's a, well, it's streaming on Amazon, right? Or sorry, it's streaming on Hulu for free, but I think it's for available for purchase at like, you know, Voodoo or Amazon. But it's probably like 20 bucks or something like that. That sound, that's, a, that's a fantastic recommendation. Yeah, it was a good. Like movie. Usually we just tell what we kind of recently saw and liked, but that one makes me think I might need to check that out this weekend. Yeah, it's worth Mads Mickelson, man. Mm-hmm. I think he's he's not done yet, man. He's got so much left in the freaking tank. Not that he's, he's not, been around that long. I mean, he's he's been doing this for, you know, 20, 25 years, but he's not a, an old man by any stretch of the imagination. I think yeah, I don't know why I kind of worded it like that. Yeah. I guess just I guess maybe what I'm trying to say is he's gonna be around for a hell of a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And he's going to have some gems popping out. I sure hope so. You got some more recommendations there, Luke? Uh, the Gilmore Girls pilot. I finally gave in and watched it. People have been recommending this for years. I was like, I don't know. It's a little too cheesy. It's a WB show. They're right. It is cheesy, but not in like a Hallmark fate kind of way. It's actually, there's something cozy about this show and the weird little village there, Stars Hollow, which I believe is in Connecticut. Um, 
It's charming, man. There's like rapid fire dialogue and retorts. I like some of the casting. Love a good retort. Yeah, and there's a lot of good. Like, there's some good pop culture references, and there's something just wholesome about it. Like something about those '90s. Well, that's actually I think it, that started in like 2000, 2001, or whatever, like that. But yeah, there's just enough wholesomeness where it's it makes for great escapism. Like I don't have to deal with politics or any other kind of violence and over the top crime. I just have some good old fashioned humanity and laughter and a few challenges along the way about growing up and parenting and that stuff. But it was nice. It felt good. And the only other thing is old, old NBA games on YouTube, because Mm. I think people, I always say highlights of great players fool you because you only see certain aspects of the game. Most people don't realize how amazing of a passer Larry Bird was. I've always argued that he was the better passer than Magic, but Magics are a little bit more cinematic, especially on the fast break. But I think Bird's got the better eye. Jordan, smarter than people think, not just a athletic superhero genius, also just a great, a smart shooter in terms of picking his spots, a minimalist, uh, didn't you know waste a lot of unnecessarily dribbles or movements in, in his later years. And that stuff kind of gets forgotten until you actually watch a full game a real game could be any sport really but the fact that you can find all these games on youtube is incredible that's that's the last of my recommendations all right and my very last recommendation is i finally just started watching the new iteration of the stand miniseries uh, based on the stephen king novel which to me is my second favorite stephen king novel of all time uh it was developed by josh boone who did, uh, what was it, um, Dr. Sleep, the film, which I'm hoping for us to do come Halloween time this year. But it's it's really good so far. It's definitely, the narrative is told very, uh, more of a flashback type of situation, than which is not what I was expecting it, but I'm following it pretty well. Performances are good. You know, the set design's really great. James Marston makes for great Stu Redman. And uh, uh, what's his name? Alexander Skarsgård is, is freaking great as uh, Randall Flagg, Man in Black. So that's really good. Not super sold right now on Whoopi Goldberg as Mother Abigail. It just is not working for me. But solid so far. So I, I, I recommend it at this point. Corey, you know a movie I recommend? Hmm. Rounders. Yes. Tell these folks why. Well, because it's an amazing poker film. It's an amazing acting performance by Matt Damon and Ed Norton. Uh, it's just a hell of a fun time. And, oh, yeah, that's right. Our own Michael Pagano is coming back. Return next of the week. mic. Return of the mic is coming back next week to talk about uh, Rounders. We're actually going to have him two weeks in a row. He's going to be back for Rounders and then Contact because, of course, we got to do some type of science-related movie. <laughs> otherwise, we're, we're legally obligated. Otherwise, we can be sued and thrown into jail. But there has he, to be uh, space involved somehow. But I'm really interested to see, to talk about like his connection to this film because he's a big, one of the things we haven't really talked about, he's a big poker player. He got me involved into poker, and that's kind of how we bonded and became friends in some ways is, is over that. So it'll be interesting to see uh, his thoughts and, and comments on that. But that's what we're going to do next week. We're going to do round, 1998's Rounders. A, a movie that, that was kind of uh, not very successful at the box office, if I recall. I don't even think it was out at the box office, out of the theaters that long. <laughs> um, which hopefully we'll get into next week if we uh, if we remember. And, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. Excellent dialogue. Brian Koppelman and David Levine, who, yes. who uh, have uh, gained a lot of notoriety from the show Billions, which has been a huge hit. So uh, excited to check that one out. Hey, he is Corey Cook. I am Luke Mayo. Movie Chumps episode 60 is in the book. We'll see you curfew breakers and hooligans next week. And remember, kids, all movies are subjective. Your mileage may vary. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.